Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul writes a letter to the Christians in Colossae, around the year 59 or 60. He's in Caesarea in prison. It's a, Colossae is a city in the Roman province of Asia, near Ephesus. We're told in the beginning of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 6, chapter 2 and verse 1, that Paul did not actually preach in Colossae, that the work of evangelism was done by Epaphras there. And we know that when the letter was written, because it was destroyed by a huge earthquake in the year 61, and was never really rebuilt. Now, we've read in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, to get there, Paul has been commending the Colossians in their hope and prayer. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, to walk worthily of the Lord, to bear fruit, and to thank God in Christ. He talks for some length in Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus, how God has worked in him, his standing, his authority, and his nature. And then he speaks of the salvation that will come to the Colossians if they remain in the gospel that they heard. And he spoke of his work of ministry. The second chapter begins by Paul setting forth his agona, his agony, his wrestling, his striving for the Christians in Colossae and Laodicea, that they may know the mystery of God in Christ, the true nature of wisdom, and that they would not be deceived by flattering speech. And then we get to the passage we've discussed in verses 6 through 10, where he's been addressing his dual concern for the Colossians. He wants them to walk in Christ as they received him, to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. For in Jesus, the fullness of divinity, the Theotetos, dwells in bodily form. And he is the head of the Arches, the principalities and the rule, and the exousias, the power and the authority. The Colossians are made full in him in verses 6 and 7 and 9 and 10. But he also warns them in verse 8, lest anyone would try to take them captive, make spoil of them, sulagogon, by means of philosophy and vain or empty deceit, according to human tradition, and by the elements or rudiments of the universe, not after Christ. And so Paul will go on in the rest of chapter 2 to speak of how the Colossians were redeemed in Christ and warns them about what we would call Judaizing and proto-Gnostic teachings. So what's going on here? Well, Paul wants the Christians to avoid the seductive philosophies of the world. And previous conversation about philosophy and vain deceit, we've talked about that at length. And now it's time for us to turn to look at what Paul instead would have them do. It's one thing to say, okay, don't do this. Another thing to say, do that. And then another thing entirely to actually then go ahead and suggest the types of things that you need to do. And Paul lays it out here. He wants them to walk in Jesus, to be rooted in Jesus, to be established in their faith, built up in Jesus, as they were taught with thanksgiving, because he has the authority. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form, and we are only filled in him. So, well and good, but what does it look like in the 21st century? How can we be rooted and edified in Christ? Well, first and foremost, as Paul has established here, we need to be in Christ. We have to be rooted in Christ. Root, in Greek, erizomeno, involves grounding instability. 
And it's a very appropriate choice in light of how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the seventh chapter, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So here, Jesus is to be our foundation, that which, uh, upon which excuse me, we build our lives. And so in a very real way, Jesus is our worldview. He is to inform our basic assumptions and beliefs that should govern our lives. I think a lot of people will agree with that, but what does it look like? What does it mean to make sure that Jesus is our foundation? Well, he says here we must hear and do his words. So first we need to hear his words. And again, it's worth emphasizing how important that idea of hearing is. In biblical times, many were illiterate. The only way they received any messages was through the hearing of them. Even those who could read still had to speak out the letters to make sense of them in either Hebrew or Greek. The idea of silent reading as we do it today is a completely novel concept. You can't read Hebrew or Greek that way. You have to read it out loud. So even if you were reading to yourself, you would still be speaking and hearing yourself speak it. So Jesus' words are to be read and heard. And they are to be accepted. And as Paul will go on saying, Colossians 3 and verse 16, that's the way that we can be in Christ and the word of Christ can be in us. And it's very important to have the word in us. Because if the word is in us, so that it's it's an understanding, not just something held at arm's length, but that the actual words that God has said uh, are within us through the hearing and understanding process. That helps us not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. This is how it's possible, as the Hebrew author says about the word of God in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because to hear is not just having vibrations enter the the, the ear canal. It involves a significant interplay of mind, emotion, and soul. The communication process is a lot more than just the communication of information. We receive a message and we have mental and visceral reactions. It's like a chemical reaction, actually, if you think about it. When we receive a message, it interacts with our worldview. It interacts with our beliefs and our assumptions, and they engage with each other. If we feel resistance to the message, where is that resistance coming from? Resistance might be coming from things we've already learned. Uh, We might have to have that kind of resistance because what we're being told is actually false. But a lot of times, uh, the resistance is there because our worldview uh, has negated that idea. And so that idea is coming into conflict with our worldview and beliefs and assumptions. And therefore, what we think we know of the world and what we're hearing are different. What are we going to do about it? Well, if we don't check ourselves. We are rejecting the power of the Word of God if we're going to every single time uh, accept whatever we already think and reject whatever we're hearing uh, from the Word of God. Uh, we're proving to be rocky or thorny soil in Matthew 13, 1-8. We're not proving to be the good soil that hears the Word and allows it to take root. And that's what it's getting to. All those metaphors about comprehension are really getting to that deep down issue. Not even the things regarding which we would agree with God, but what are we going to do when we disagree? What happens in that circumstance? 
And the long and short of it is that as Christians, if we're going to glorify God, we're going to have to challenge a lot of the basic assumptions that we have been raised to accept. And this is going to happen in different ways for different people at different times. But I would suggest that especially in 21st century America, a few of them uh, involve the following. For instance, our world today does not believe in the continued divine agency. Uh, if people believe there's a God, most of them are going to believe in some kind of deist God, that he created everything, he set all the natural forces in motion, and then he is back in the background. Not unlike the Epicurean gods. Yet in Colossians 1.17, we're told that uh, the, the, con the, the creations upheld by the power of God and that uh, it's sustained in him in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. Now, are we going to change our minds? Are we going to repent? And are we going to continue to depend on God's sustenance? Are we going to change the way we look at the world to understand that everything that we have and are uh, is continually something God gives us? That every single breath we take, God has empowered and allowed because God is continuing to sustain the creation. That if God ceased for even a moment to sustain the creation, that it would collapse and it would no longer exist. Now, if all things are sustained by God continually, that's going to change the way we look at the universe around us. It's become very easy to look at the universe around us as if there is no God and just looking at mechanical forces at work. But we understand that everything is sustained by God, then we see that all those forces at work glorify God and help us understand more about Him. In Romans 1, 19 through 21, that's what the idea that we're supposed to have when we try to understand the world around us, not to master it, not to manipulate it, not to build more babbles, but to glorify its creator. Because in Christ, we're to understand that the only reason that we can understand anything is because we're made in God's image. And that God, being who he is, has made it creation that is comprehensible. It can be understood. And that, in fact, he has made himself known both in the revelation of creation, in the way things have been made in Revelation 1, 9, Romans 1, 19 through 21, in man whom he's made in his image, and through his word in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So it's very important to keep that in mind. That's how we know anything is true. And therefore, something is true only because it is explicitly made known by what God has communicated to mankind, or it is in alignment with how God has made the universe. It's been very clear in Scripture, Deuteronomy 29, 29, they're the secret things that belong to God. And Isaiah 55, 8, 9, that is, the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than our ways and His thoughts and our thoughts. But what God has made known in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that He has revealed are for us and for our children forever. We can understand them. So in the end, the skeptic is correct. On our own, we cannot be sure of anything. We cannot know anything as certain as individuals. Our uh, perception is skewed. Uh, we have been corrupted in thought and in, in motive and in emotion. The only truly certain thing is what is true of God in Christ. And the only certain truth of what God has made known is in Christ. As Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in John 14 and verse 6. But this does not mean empiricism can, can be sustained. Its ground is shaken. Because we cannot prove anything exists objectively, we cannot prove anything beyond the provisions of what we understand. If something is true, it's because God has made it known in the creation. Or God has made it known in his word. That's why it's true. So God's revelation is all that is certainly true. Everything else is only true in as much as it reflects the truth of what God has made known to us in the creation, in ourselves, and in the word.
Therefore, and this is very important, truth is not really dug up by human effort in quote-unquote objective environments, as rationalists would like to suggest. It is not as if all truth is relative, as they would say in postmodernism, but as 1 Corinthians 1.18-31 established, the expert will be made a fool, and we're not to trust in earthly authorities or worldly philosophies, but what, what God has revealed in Christ. And a lot of times, that's going to seem crazy to people. It's going to go against everything that is understood to be true in the world. That was true for Paul and the Corinthians. And they took their stand in the crucified, are we? And that even can seep into the way that we look at the Word itself. A lot of times we try to learn the Word of God as if we can master it. As if we can become uh, skilled in it like another person be skilled in a profession to manipulate it to our purposes. When it comes to God's message, we recognize that we have not mastered it, but that the Word is to master us. Not for nothing does God make mankind and put him in a garden back in Genesis 2. Because a garden is a place he can never master. Because it's already been created and established in certain ways. But he can constantly find out exactly the, how the Creator has put it together in a beautiful way. And glorify the Creator for that. And that's how we are to look at ourselves in the world and in the Word. We are in the garden of God's delights. And so when we learn facts about the universe through scientific discovery... It's not as if we figured them out by human effort. They're always been true in God. And we're seeing how God has made it known and how he's made the creation, and therefore we glorify him. When we see the, the word and we are confirmed in it, when we see some of the deep logic in the word, and we see the, the consistency in the stories, the allusions and the metaphors and how it all works together, and we're struck by that, it's a way that we glorify God as we're in his garden of his delights. And that's why Paul says what he does there in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Why is it that we're not to be taken captive by the philosophy? Why are we to be, to be rooted in Christ and built up in Him? Because He is a fullness of, of deity in bodily form. Therefore, He is our model. He is of all authority, and therefore we can only find fullness in Him, not in ourselves, and not by our strength, but in His power. Now, this process is not static. and doesn't happen all at once. In fact, it kind of is like an onion. When you peel off one layer, you find a new layer. And so as we challenge fundamental assumptions and develop a more Christ-like way of looking at things, we're going to find another layer of assumptions we'll have to challenge and restore other ways in which we view ourselves and the world around us as Jesus would have us. Because we're always also tempted to go, and to, to go back to the way the way it was in the world. But if we thought that just hearing Jesus' words is enough, we've fallen for the trap of Greek philosophy, where it's all about belief. As Jesus makes very clear there in Matthew 7, it's not merely about belief. It's hearing it and who does it. After all, the man who builds his house on the sand is one who hears Jesus' word but does not do them. So therefore, we must not just hear, but also do what Jesus says. Now, do we do automatically if we know? No. It may seem clear, but the whole premise of the Enlightenment in the past 250 years involves knowledge and ignorance, that the real problem in the world is ignorance. And if we just eliminate ignorance, and we just inform people, they'll make better decisions. They'll master it, and they'll be able to do it better. Now, 
honestly. It's amazing how effective that's been in many respects, but we're always going to run into a limit about that because there's a very different way of knowledge revealed by God in Christ. In Romans 7, Paul talks about how we know and yet we do not do, and we do what we do not want to do. We do what we don't want to do. Uh, the problem is sin. We cannot divorce hearing from doing, and we cannot assume that if we have right knowledge, we're going to have right action. Because we have been corrupted by sin, even in our thoughts and our actions. And so we, we, even if we know what we need to do, it's hard for us to do it. We cannot separate our mind from our soul and body in terms of knowledge. Knowledge and experience go hand in hand. That's why in Hebrews 5, 12 14, the mature person is the one who has his powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That involves the mind, involves the body, involves the soul, involves everything. Understanding and doing is not disassociated as easily as we'd like to. Uh, as humans, we learn by doing. That's the way it is in Christianity. Uh, the difference between the one who hears only and does not do in James 1, 25 It's worth pointing out that Jesus did not merely say that his words were truth. He did not say, my words are the truth. He said, I am the truth in John 14, 6. Paul and John do not merely tell us to listen to Jesus' words, but encourage us to walk in him in Colossians 2, 6 and 1 John 2, 6. And again, it's this unfortunate legacy of Greek philosophy that we have this idea that we can separate idea from reality, as if the ideal form can be disassociated from the reality on the ground, that we can think, well, there's the truth, and the re real truth is going to be completely different. No, we must seek to embody the ideal in the real, because Jesus embodied God in the flesh. Jesus was the truth in reality. He was no mere form. That changes everything. He's not a form. He is. God is. He's not an ideal. He is. And that changes everything. And so therefore, no matter how much we know, we must also do. And in the doing, we continue to learn. We continue to grow and mature. We continue to deepen our understanding and connection with God, as we also see in 2 Peter 3, 18. So what do we do? Well, we can summarize it in so many ways. We're to manifest the fruit of the Spirit to avoid the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 17-24. The image of being conformed to the image of the Son, walking as He walked in Romans 8, 28, Colossians 2, 6, and 1 John 2, 6. And yet the lessons that we learn about God's sustenance to creation come to bear in our practice. We are who we are in His strength, and therefore we want to, above all things, submit to His will and to submit to His work in our lives in Galatians 2, 20, Philippians 2, 12-13. Really, in short, the idea is if Jesus is Lord, we are not. And therefore, we are to do what he says to do. And that's the whole idea of Galatians 2.20. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're no longer slaves of sin in Romans 6.15-23, but we're slaves of righteousness because we've become obedient to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed. We're to treat others as God has treated us. We're to reflect Christ in our personal character and walk in all of our relationships in Luke 6 and Ephesians 5 and 6. In the end, we must pray as Jesus did in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. Now, all these things and many more can contribute to us being rooted in Christ. And the deeper we explore our fundamental beliefs and assumptions, the more we're going to study, the more we practice, the more we do, the more we submit, the more connected we are to Christ, the more we reflect Him. If we turn to Him and not to the world. What's interesting is that he does talk about how we're supposed to be rooted in Christ, but we're also to be built up or edified in him. In Colossians 2 and verse 6. 
And that's where uh, Paul's metaphor, 1 Corinthians 3, comes to mind, where he talks about the fact that we all have a, the foundation is Jesus Christ, and that after that we all build upon that. And so, uh, in verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And he continues on. The whole idea there, building up. And there's going to be trial. It's going to test what has been built up. The word for edification, built up, is a construction term. It is not only used in the New Testament for spiritual things. It's the same word used to talk about building a building. And so the idea is not uh, that we're going to build church buildings of different forms. The idea is that we, in our lives, are building on the foundation of Jesus. And that building that we are constructing, whatever form it's going to take, is how we are being edified, built up in him. Now, edification, it cannot be divorced from the things we've just talked about. All those things about the way we live, about what we think, how we, how we do things, uh, come, brings a bear on edification. But edification speaks to encouragement. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, all things in the assembly will be done for building up. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, they're to come together in the assembly to encourage one another. And we would be remiss if we did not note the emphasis on building up in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And God gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Edification there. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful seams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up, it edifies itself, in love. Is Paul's message really different in Ephesians 4, 11-16 than it is in Colossians 2, 6-10? No, it's just approaching it a different way. The idea that how are you going to resist all of these worldly forces? Well, it's because you are nourished and sustained in Jesus and working together to build each other up. Because whatever we may do as individuals to be edified in Christ, in Scripture, much edification is to be derived in participating in the faith with the saints. It's why we come together in the assembly to divorce ourselves from worldly concerns, to share in spiritual activities to strengthen and build us up in our faith, to do all things for edification in 1 Corinthians 14.26. In the preaching and teaching of the word, we seek to learn and apply the message of God to life today, that we work through the processes we've described. This is the work of preaching the gospel in 2 Timothy 4.1-5, and it's something that a lot of times is easy to underemphasize. We want to emphasize biblical fidelity, and of course that makes absolute sense. But And therefore, we try to point people back to Scripture. And that's very good. People need to go back to Scripture. But in all that, we forget that Scripture must be interpreted. That that's not a bad thing. That's, in fact, a feature, not a bug. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why we don't have a prophet going around telling us, in, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, we are like Jewish people were after the days of Ezra, where they are uh, interpreting the law according to the situation in which they find themselves. And that's how God's treating us today. And so an important part of the assembly is, okay, it's 2016. How are we going to live according to what the gospel has taught us? 
And that's work that we do in preaching and teaching. It's work that we do as individuals in our interpretations as well, no doubt. But it's a major part of the work of preaching and teaching. In praying and singing, we're speaking to God and to one another to remind each other how much God has blessed us and how dependent we are on Him, to encourage one another in deep ways with spiritual messages. 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 5, 19, and Colossians 3, 16. In the Lord's Supper, so important that we remember the Lord's death on the day of His resurrection, that we commune with each other, that we embody the body of Christ, and that we're telling the story of God's saving work in Christ, and that by partaking of that bread and the fruit of the vine, that we are participating in that story. Just as Israel was to see that the Passover was a continuing reality, that they were to observe it as if they were going themselves to leave the land of Egypt that very night, even if it were a thousand years afterward, even if they were living in the security of the kings, that it was important to reenact that so that they would feel that continuity and to realize what God had done for them. That's what the Lord's Supper is doing for us. It brings us back to that upper room. It brings us back to thousand years in a very different time and place, admittedly. But to realize that we're sharing the same cup, the same bread, that we're sharing in the same Lord, and that we have our place in the story, and that there's continuity there. And that's in Acts 20 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17, 11, 17 through 34. And when we give, we're reminded that all blessings come from God and are to be used to His glory and purposes, and we're jointly contributing to the work of God in that local church. In 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Christians do this because they're the ecclesia. They're the assembly of the people of God. And therefore, they're going to need to be together if they're going to embody and reflect the body of Christ, to work together. We have so many descriptions of that. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Galatians 4. We've got to be together. To, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, sorry. Work together. We've got to be together to do that. And that edification process reminds us that we're to be part of something greater than ourselves, and that our true identity is in Christ and by necessity in his body with its other constituent members. It helps us remember that our primary loyalty is to be with the kingdom and to our fellow people of God, that we're to strengthen and be strengthened in turn. Which is very different than the individualistic ethics in which we live. And it's only the American worldly ideology that exalts individualism and independence. If we're going to build each other up in Christ, we're going to have to trust each other. We're going to have to depend on each other. We're going to have to identify with one another, or we're not going to make it. It's important to note when Peter warns the Christians about the devil uh, prowling around like a roaring lion, he then continues on and says to know that the same sufferings are being experienced throughout the world by the brotherhood. And that's why we need to recognize our dependence on God on Christ, on the Spirit, on the body, the people of God. We cannot be fully rooted in Christ if we're not built up as a functioning part of his body. So Paul provides very important exhortations to the Colossian Christians. And a lot of the challenges that come in following Christ are because of these, the spiritual war that we have with the forces of darkness. And a lot of that battleground is happening in hearts and minds, worldview and basic assumptions about reality. And we need to turn away from the philosophies of this world. But the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we turn and root ourselves instead in God and Christ. That we must be founded in Christ, to subject ourselves thoroughly to Him, to allow Him to do His work through the Spirit in reforming our thoughts and thought processes, feelings and behavior, to follow Jesus to do what He said. 
that we must be built up in Christ, edified, identifying primarily with the people of God in the body of Christ, to assemble them frequently and to participate jointly with them in the spiritual practices and disciplines that have nourished and sustained the people of God for generations, incorporating them into the story of God's people. And that is why we do well to strive to be conformed to the image of Christ, to no longer be conformed to the image of the world, so that we can obtain the resurrection of the blessed. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you've been encouraged by this. Maybe you'd like to talk more about these things. There's a lot of other ways in which we can talk about being rooted and in, in, in edified in Christ. Uh, you can maybe want to explore the, the conversation we've had about the necessity of the biblical worldview, uh, philosophy and empty, vain deceit, or uh, lessons on other subjects. Uh, maybe you'd like to have a Bible study. Maybe you have a prayer request and you need to talk to somebody. If there's any way that we can be a service, you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at VenetureChrist.org. Follow on all these things there. Or also you can find us on social media. You can also contact me personally through my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.